ladies and gentlemen. Thanks again for joining us on the Unknown Strength Podcast. This is episode number 24. My name's McGregor McNair. Uh, as usual, I'm your host, but as is quite unusual, I don't have Brenton McKitterick with me as my co-host. He, um, he's unable to join us this afternoon, but let's, uh, let's not lament over that just yet. We can more than make up for that with the fact that we have the one and only Mr. Dan Garner yeah. in the studio with us today, man. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great, brother. How are you doing? Really, really good. Super happy to be here. Awesome, man. No, it's, it's been fantastic catching up with you, getting to know you a little bit, mm. um, getting to show you around Melbourne, introduce you to Melbourne coffee. Yeah, that's been in the... I already made it worth the plane trip altogether. <laughs> <laughs> the coffee is absolutely phenomenal here it is it is it's it's no lie melbourne has some of the best coffee on the planet yeah but you and i would never sneak out for any sandwiches or beers would be you know we that's not something that you and i do you know that's that's what the plebs do and we are yeah. clearly uh, we're evolved those, yeah we're not one of those guys right? no, no. we're not gonna do that after this podcast or anything no right? no <laughs> melbourne's preeminent dive bar the spleen the spleen is not calling our names after we're done here and i'm not gonna ask why it's called that either i'm just gonna let that lie <laughs> let sleeping dogs lie it's, it's a mystery it's a mystery but the, the spleen bar is a little bit of an institution it, it went um it underwent a bit of a makeover a couple of years ago which is disappointing to a lot of people because it was the rattiest dirgiest so the dive of dives the dive of dive bars <laughs> which is kind of why everyone loved it it had the sticky carpet you oh, know geez. nothing worked in the place they were like you know Polaroid photos stuck like really badly, yeah. you know, sticky taped up on the walls and shit. You know, Love it. it was just awful, and yeah. I, I loved it that way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, someone someone bought it and kind of really did it up, and it's quite a nice, um, quite a nice place now. But it's still got some of the charm that it always has. So, yeah, for sure. Um, and so yeah, they they run stand up comedy in there. I think two or three nights a week. Yeah. And it's um it's you know it's more of a respectable place, but it's lost some of the character. Ah, that's all right. It's still got some of that character, yeah. and it might have been a good thing to not have a sticky carpet anyhow. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe where you come from. I don't know. Maybe their spleens got emptied out in the carpet. <laughs> that's why this mystery name came from. Yeah. No. Well, look, they, they serve Melbourne bitter, and that's really what's important. Yeah. Hundred percent. Mm, that's good, man. Now, um, for everyone listening. Dan Garner is one of, um, well, he's one of the really big players in the nutrition space. Now, mm. I don't want to go into too much detail and steal your thunder. I'll let you introduce yourself, but we really are super fortunate to have Dan with us today. Um, this week, uh, my colleague Daniel Howard and I have been uh, taking Dan Garner around to a few different places, mm. hitting some, some pads, training some Muay Thai, yep. and talking some shit on these podcasts. Yep. Um, so Dan, for the listeners, please introduce yourself and uh, tell everybody about your area of expertise. Sure thing. So my name's Dan Garner. I'm a strength coach and nutrition specialist from Canada. And uh, I've, got a, I've had the luxury to work with a lot of different athletes. I really specialize in high-level advanced nutrition. But um, I've got a year-round stable of athletes in the UFC, the NFL, the NHL, the MLB, pro boxers. Um, I, I name a pro sport, and I probably have got an athlete somewhere in Badminton. It. 
No. <laughs> Damn. Damn. <laughs> you got me. So I haven't really made it yet. <laughs> I'm a pro badminton player. Pro but, handball. No, <laughs> no. So anything big in North America, I guess mm -hmm. I should say. I don't mm -hmm. know how big badminton is here or why. That was the first thing that came to mind. It was the most obscure thing. <laughs> <laughs> Just to throw me off. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no. Pro, pro athletes in a lot of different sports work with top business execs. Um, and uh, really, really focused on nutrition and education for coaches. And just really, that's, that's who I am and really what I'm about in a nutshell. Mm. Now, I, now I do lectures internationally, do seminars internationally. Um, I'm a speaker for the NSCA, which is the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Um, I certify trainers through my own method. So I certify trainers in how I do training program design. I certify trainers in how I do nutritional program design. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's kind of me in a nutshell right now. Fantastic. Man, there's, there's, uh, there's so many things going on there. So many uh, different types of athletes you're working with. Mm -hmm. So many different types of protocols um, and individual factors that you need to be across. Yep. Um, when you're dealing with the human organism and nutrition and optimizing performance and mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. On this show, though, we, uh, we specifically deal with fight athletes okay. and, and the lifestyle factors, the training factors and, and all that sort of stuff to do with fighters, um, which you obviously know a lot about. You've, you've worked with the likes of Ronda Rousey, mm -hmm. um, Michael Bisping when he, when he won the title off, um, what was his name again? Uh, it was just Luke Rockhold, yeah, I that, think, just uh, somebody. Yeah. Some, some chump. He from... also beat somebody named Anderson Silva while I was working yeah. with him. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Ne never heard of that guy. <laughs> yeah. Also beat Dan Henderson while he's working with me. Yeah. I don't know if you know of uh, Dan Henderson at all. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've heard the name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only the ex-most decorated fighter in martial arts history, mixed yeah. martial One arts One of the history. toughest guys of all time, too, yeah. just period. Dan Henderson is an animal. Yeah. He's an ox. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. So yeah, done worked at a very, very high level with some super big names. So, yeah. but also the low level stuff too. So also a lot of amateur, a lot of high school, a lot of college. So mm -hmm. have experience not just with those crazy ones. Those are the coolest ones to talk about. But uh, experience is experience, and working with all kinds of fighters is what uh, I think allows you to have the greatest amount of coaching adaptability. Sure, and that's something that uh, you can't replace. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's experience. It's kind of in the trenches experience, as mm -hmm. they say. But what what are some of the you know the the best or the most enjoyable experiences you've had in in your coaching career? Um, in my coaching career as a whole, well, I've had I've had an athlete win an Olympic gold medal on my watch. Well, I've, that's I've, significant. I've, yeah, I've had a I've had a, an athlete win a Super Bowl on mm. on, on my watch, and um, I've had an athlete win the UFC middleweight championship on my watch. So Man. those. Um, those three were, were really, really, really big and significant wins for me. Absolutely. Yeah. And the yeah. fact that they were in three different sports, I think, was um, even, even um, more ex excited me a lot more. I wasn't just racking up a lot of wins just in one sport, but in, in ice hockey, in football, and in fighting. Yeah, there's a lot of versatility there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of different factors for each sport. Same fundamentals. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Same, same. We've had this conversation off air. Same fundamentals, but then that last 10% is where you get that last 10% of true optimization to get someone to a world championship level. But something like I like to say to my students is before you treat anyone like an athlete, treat them like a human. 
Yep. Humans have high <clears throat> levels of inflammation. Humans have high levels of stress. Humans have poor sleep quality. Humans suffer from understanding the fundamentals of nutrition. So when you cover all of the human factors, mm. that's really gonna account for 80 to 90% of the game. Yes. And then that last 10% is where we get into the nitty gritty things like your supplementation optimization, your meal frequency, your pre, intra, post-workout nutrition, the exact formulas that are gonna be best for you. Maybe we would move into some lab-based nutrition. That's something that I do for a lot of my advanced clientele is run them through saliva, urine, stool, and blood analysis to try mm -hmm. and further customize the process so that you are truly running a plan that is made from you from the outside in and from the inside out mm, wow you know look it's i love the fact that you're going for all the human factors first mm -hmm. you're looking at the big rocks you're looking at um the stuff that that uh, anyone you work with has a hundred percent control over mm -hmm. you know the, the eat the sleep the recovery yep um the hydration yep the you know the lifestyle factors yeah for sure but if i'm two percent faster than you i win every time exactly i'm two percent stronger yeah. than you on a powerlifting platform i win every time that's right. so it's that's like right. at, at those higher levels people will claw with their fingernails for every last 0.1 percent of optimization that they yeah. can get because if we're in a 100 meter dash and you're one percent slower than me this is like first to eighth like it's a, it's a huge difference mm. if you're one percent slower than someone so all of that stuff, although you and I understand good and well that the fundamentals will get you 80 to 90% of your way there, it doesn't mean that the advanced tactics shouldn't be utilized once you're ready for them. Yes. Once you have <clears throat> mastered the basics, then you're ready for the advance. You know, um, a lot of people, they will start getting excited about a lot of this stuff. And what they want to do is they want to be great. But they're not even average yet. So I want to set back and be like, okay, why don't we get great at being average first? Mm, mm. And then, okay, now let's move from average to good. Why don't we get great at being good first? <laughs> and then we'll move on to getting great at being great. Because there's a logical progression and a logical sequence for people to go through in order to logically progress them to an optimal level of performance. Sure. You need to be able to build habits, behaviors, and mindset pattern recognition and pattern thinking before you're able to go into all of the super, super, super advanced stuff. And this is something that you can apply even to basic program design. So if you want to, say, drop body fat, and then you're going to, like, the maximum calorie deficit that you would want to introduce to somebody on a fat loss diet would, say, be something like 30% deficit mm -hmm. right off the start. Well, if you hire me as a fat, for a fat loss, and then I put you on the best training program in the world, and I also put you on a 30% deficit at the exact same time, all right from stage one, and then you plateau, then where are we gonna do? We got nowhere else to go. We got no more aces to pull out of our sleeve. Right. So a big part of actually being able to get to an elite level is having patience to only pull out one ace at a time. Yes. One small ace at a time to break through a plateau. Let's do average and then let's get great at average. Mm -hmm. Let's do good, let's get great at good. Let's do great and then <clears> let's <throat> get great at great. It's one ace at a time, one plateau buster at a time that will ultimately lead you to a world-class level of performance, but you have to go through progression in order to get there. 
Do you wanna do you wanna learn a ten punch combination before you learn how to jab? Mm. Hell no, yeah. you can't. You're gonna get crushed by a guy who just knows how to throw a jab. <laughs> period. Even though you might have a cool Mortal Kombat combination, <laughs> you learned it way too quickly. You know what I'm saying? I love the Mortal Kombat reference. I, yeah, I had to throw it in. <laughs> but I guess it's a similar concept to progressive overload. Yeah. It's, it's the Absolutely. same thing, right? Yeah, it is the same thing. <clears throat> progressive overload in every sense of the word. However you decide to go through your progression in training, you can overload with intensity by adding more weight to the bar. You can overload with density by doing more in the exact same time frame as your workout. So mm. your workout is still 60 minutes long, but now you're going to do more in 60 minutes and thus making your workout more dense. You can have an intensity overload. You can have a density overload. You can have a greater time under tension overloads to your, your sets, your volume overload. So we'd be extending the time of the workout at this point. And then you can have overload through nutrition as well. Another calorie deficit, more protein, a different supplement, waiting to do this supplement until the next plateau so that we actually have a new ACE to pull out, right? Yep. One thing at a time ultimately leads you to the ladder of success. And if you try to do all that in the beginning, you're going to run out of ACEs to pull out really quickly. Mm, absolutely. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so being patient is just a big part of the process, um, not just for the athlete, by the way, not just for the fighters listening to this podcast, but for the coaches as well. One of the hallmarks of being a, a great coach is not actually changing the program all the time. It's not changing the program all the time. Mm. Having the patience to see physiology run itself out. And um, knowing when. Yeah, knowing yeah. when to do something. You know, a lot of coaches panic. They think that, um, oh, my client didn't lose weight this week, so I better change it because they're paying me money. Like, relax. You, you know, you understand that physiology doesn't adapt overnight. Mm. You understand that nobody, that there's going to be natural laws and progression. It's something that just happens. People don't get linear results for the rest of their life, but there's certain programs and systems that they should stay on for certain periods of time. And you can allow physiology to adapt. Like I'm, I'm famous for putting people on a meal plan and a training system and then just waiting to see how their physiology responds. Mm. Because a lot of times your biology is going to respond to averages over time and if you're changing stuff all the time you're constantly changing then you're not allowing your body enough time on the current system to gain the maximal adaptation out of it so it's not just patience it's not just patience for the athlete it's patience for the coaches as well everybody needs to be patient and go through that logical progression to really get to a high level mm. If, if I may, <clears throat> it's something I've, I've debated with, uh, with <clears throat> another coach about in, in the sense of strength. Uh -oh. No, no, this is, this is <laughs> in a strength training concept yeah. uh, context where you could use linear periodization mm -hmm. for a long time with a beginner and not reach a plateau, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Whereas with, with, that same, with that same beginner, you could throw a more advanced protocol like undulating periodization, uh, like where there's lots of variation in, in those modalities you, you mentioned earlier, the volume, the frequency, intensity, density. Yep. You can use those more advanced concepts with the same beginner athlete and not see anywhere near the same amount of gains as a really basic linear uh, periodization model does you know we're saying the same thing essentially yeah yeah definitely be patient use the basics master them yeah for sure you yeah. you just using the basics master the basics you would get results 
um, in a linear model 100%. You could get good results in the undulating model too. Um, I think both of them could be a viable option. Going more basic makes more sense in the beginning, so a linear yeah. periodization model, I, to me, would be the obvious route to take. But um, <clears throat> as far as routes go, I'm a big fan of making my plan fit the client and not make my client fit my plan. Yes. So whatever the client enjoys most is what they're going to get the best results from. Yep. So I always say, pick the path that leads to the greatest amount of consistency. Consistency, yeah. Consistency yeah. beats intensity every yep. single time. Every time. I love that. And it's like the, uh, the workout that the client's going to enjoy the most is what's going to bring about the most consistency. Yeah, absolutely, because yeah. they're yeah. coming back. Yeah. No, nobody gets in shape in a week from training. Nobody gets in shape in a week from dieting. People get in shape from biology responding to averages over time. So it's yeah. always consistency that's going to beat intensity. Yeah. And intensity is lots of times when people burn themselves out and then they can't come back. <laughs> and they, uh, they went too hard, too fast, too strong. They pulled all their aces out in the beginning, which led to them going too too hard, too fast, too strong, and then they ran into a plateau, they had no more aces to run out, and they forgot that intensity never beats consistency. Mm -hmm. The tortoise and the hare is true in strength and conditioning. Yeah, I love that. You know, I've never heard that analogy put over this particular context. Yeah. I love it, I yeah. love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. That's a great one. <laughs> now, you, you, uh, you said one earlier um, uh, with, with reference to somebody trying all these really, really um, finicky and advanced nutrition protocols when they haven't taken care of the big rocks. I believe you said uh, you're mowing your lawn when your house is on fire. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You're focusing on the wrong problem. <laughs> mowing the lawn while your house is on fire. Yeah, I love that one. That was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it makes perfect sense in this context as well. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> There's a way bigger problem at hand. Yeah. You're focusing on the grass. You're focusing on the tiny details to give you a really small return and investment when your biggest asset's currently on fire. Sure. Yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> For everyone in the audience who's not aware, you've got uh, you've got a run of seminars booked for Australia this mm. coming weekend. The uh, was it the fourteenth, fifteenth? Fifteenth to the seventeenth. Fifteenth to the seventeenth. Yeah. Um, at uh, at Body Seek in Thomastown. Yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> you've got a, another one the following weekend in Sydney at the Rendezvous Hotel. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, Rendezvous Hotel, Sydney Central. Yep, Sydney Central, and that's the end of the tour, right? Yes, that's right. All right. Perth, Melbourne, and Sydney. But right now, I'm hanging out in Melbourne with you. So mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. Perth is already done, but Melbourne at Body Seek, February 15th to 17th, and Sydney at Ho Rendezvous Hotel, Sydney Central, February 22nd to 24th. Awesome. Now, if you wouldn't mind, can you run us through um, some of the content you're going to share with everyone in attendance? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll be going over on Friday night. It's going to be a totally free seminar that anybody can attend on how to build a fitness business online because I work 100% online. I have been doing that for over five years now. I've been out of a in-person facility and mm -hmm. that's given me the luxury to work with all of these different athletes and different actors and different businessmen, travel the world. I'm, I'm from, a, from a town of 1,500 people and I'm in Melbourne talking with you. Like how cool. It's that's really pretty very, fucking cool. Yeah. Right? <laughs> It's something I'm crazy grateful that I'm even able to say yeah, something as yeah. wild as that. 
So I'm going to, I want to teach people how I did that because I, I want to show people exactly what I did, how I did it, and how they can do it too. Because trust me, if I can do it, you can do it. I know people say that, but trust me, if I can do it, you can do it. They so, also say never trust a person who says trust me. Yeah. <laughs> you can trust a Canadian. We're, we're good. <laughs> we're trustworthy. Um, but that's going to be Friday night and Saturday and Sunday. Saturday is going to be exclusively focused on muscle building and Sunday is going to be exclusively focused on fat loss. So as you kind of got a, a hint into everybody, um, I, I'm, I get very advanced with this stuff. There's a reason why these people, they could hire absolutely anybody, but they do hire me to get them ready for titles and Super Bowls and even Netflix comedy specials and stuff. I've worked with a lot of different cool people and uh, I get very advanced. So Saturday is gonna be all about my approach to both training and nutrition for muscle building. And Sunday is gonna be all about my approach for training and nutrition for fat loss. And in that respect, um, you'll be learning training program design from scratch, meal plan design from scratch, and you'll also be getting completely done for you training programs made by myself, but also full periodization breakdowns that you can use with beginners, intermediates, or advanced. So even though we get to the advanced, we do work our way there. <laughs> like we talked about previously, we progress all the way to that point. So you'll be getting all the done for you programs by myself for muscle building and fat loss, but also the different ways in which you can apply them because the science behind the program isn't what makes it advanced how you apply the program is mm. yeah right? a beginner program can be incredibly scientific but its application is what determines if it's beginner intermediate or advanced so i'll be going over a ton of that stuff and those weekend lectures will, will be nine to five and uh, the people leaving those lectures are going to be the ones that really stand out in this industry mm. <clears throat> yeah i mean there's uh, you know, over nine to five two days full of lectures that's that's a lot of content that's right a lot of ground to cover yeah but i mean that's that is the science behind this stuff you, you could spend as long as you wanted breaking it down yep. and going into as much detail as you want yep and, and it's like uh learn from me learn from my experience this is uh i consider myself a coach first and educator second mm. not an educator first and a coach second mm -hmm. i came through this industry as a coach that's the only reason i am here it's the only reason why anybody knows me is because the results i got with my clients yes. and i take a very science-based approach training is not a belief system nutrition is not a belief system they are both sciences and i break down the science i go through all of the relevant research but then i break it down in a very layman's based way so that everybody leaves there confident and more importantly they have clarity on how to actually design programs for different people mm, i love that <clears throat> and it's one of the things in my experience as a personal trainer in the personal training industry it's amazing how few people have a really good grasp on that stuff. Yeah, about so, the principles and the fundamentals and how they apply. And how to put it all together. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people, they know programs, but they don't know how to apply them in the best context, and they don't know how to make their own programs. They'll know like the 8815 system or Jim Wendler's 531. <laughs> 
or German volume training. You know, they'll, they'll know a lot of these different programs, but uh, a program is only as good as it is applied. Mm. And these programs, you can't make all people fit into slots. So that's why I'm very big on making programs from scratch truly for individuals, because when you go from Wendler's 531 to Westside to Joe DeFranco's program to all these different programs, it's what I call pinballing. It's not true periodization. It's pin, pinballing from one program to the next bopping back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and although all of those program designs may be sound it doesn't mean that you're sequencing in them in the right order in order to get the best possible result and like i said biology responds to averages over time you're not going to get results even within one program it's something that truly happens over the periodization of what your whole year should look like mm -hmm. on paper it's like you reverse engineer the outcome you want you you should have the goal and the end point and then you have to rationalize and work your way all the way up to that point through periodization models. And making as many adaptations or many changes to, to the program as necessary because, you know, in my experience, probably yours as well, like nothing ever goes to plan. <laughs> nothing ever goes exactly according to plan. There's yeah. always something to work around. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. And, and uh, that's something that I've said in the past is uh, what determines good coaches from great coaches isn't necessarily knowledge, it's adaptability. Mm. There are some coaches who can go shot for shot with me on high level physiology and high level endocrinology and immunology and muscle physiology. They can go shot for shot with me about all that high level advanced stuff, but I would consider them a programmer and not a coach. Yep. The difference between a coach and a programmer. A coach knows how to get results because they're adaptable. Programmers, on the other hand, programmers coach numbers, whereas coaches coach people. people. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's it's true, and I think they're two very very different skill sets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there, there would be a spectrum on which you would fit as a coach. Yeah, you know, either leaning to one side or the other. Yeah, uh, but they are two very different realms. Yes, you know, a hundred percent. Yeah, and both realms are very respectable. Mm. I don't disrespect programmers; they're incredibly intelligent. Mm. But there's a lot of programmers out there, say on social media, for example, who will talk about groundbreaking research, and they're definitely correct. But it doesn't mean that they get results with people. Yeah, you that's know, right. You that's can right. talk very academic and still not get results. Yeah. And then on the other hand, you can talk very unacademic, but still get phenomenal results. Yes. You know, at the end of the day, who the heck? is getting results mm -hmm. that you have something to learn from that person if they're consistently getting results period mm -hmm. I don't care if they're referencing their work or not even though this is a science it's still evidence that's something that um, I think a lot of people also mistake we uh, one, one thing that's very popular now is evidence-based practice mm -hmm. we're going through evidence-based practice but people are misrepresenting that to mean that it has to be from a clinical trial mm -hmm. no if I've got results doing this then I have evidence of getting results doing this with my clients mm -hmm. I therefore am going through evidence-based practice by going through the methods that I utilize in my practice and I can demonstrate straight with this evidence that it works mm. whether it says et al on it or not <laughs> whether it says garner et al 2019 <laughs> or not it's freaking evidence yeah, evidence-based yeah. practice is you is creating methods based on data mm. making data-driven decisions whether that be from clinical trials whether that be from meta-analysis or whether that be from my current coaching practice they are all within the realm they are all within the umbrella of evidence so don't mistake evidence-based practice mm. Speaking of evidence-based practice, 
Um, one of the things I wanted to really, um, I guess uh, Pandora's box I wanted to open up with you today on this show was some of the myths and fallacies and worst practices mm. surrounding, uh, you know, not limited to nutrition and supplementation for, for fighters, but, you know, strength and conditioning, even, even some philosophical things that, um, that people are getting wrong. You yeah. know, um, because I think, you know, you, you've had enough experience working at all levels of the spectrum of the fight game from amateur to UFC champion. Mm. Um, just tell us, like, the, the floor is yours, my friend. Like, tell us some of the myths, fallacies and worst practices you've seen out there. Myths, fallacies and worst practices. Well, I think one of the biggest things in the fight world is the idea that carbs make you fat. Um, it's some, that's something that I've tackled many times over, but continue having to repeat myself because it continues existing in this world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, just won't die. It just won't die. <laughs> um, but McLaughlin, hey, I'll, I mean, that, oh, this was over 10 years ago. I think it was 12 years now, ago now. They, within his research and entire crew of research, they determined that um, uh, when you have people, if you place people who are insulin sensitive or insulin resistant on the exact same caloric deficit, then they still lose the identical amount of weight, even though they have a different response to carbohydrates within the body. The reason why they lost the same amount of weight wasn't because it was carbs, it was because they were both placed in a calorie deficit, mm -hmm. period. And we've seen in Noakes' research, and this is in 2007, this is one of the most powerful ones of all of them, is Noakes for four months had groups going through, um, they were all placed in a caloric deficit, but the thing here is the groups ranged anywhere from 4% of their daily calories coming from carbohydrates to 70% of their daily calories coming from carbohydrates. So full on ketogenic diet versus 70% of your daily carbohydrates, 70% um, of your daily calories, sorry, are coming from carbohydrates. So keto to extremely high carb, absolutely no difference in rates of fat loss by the end of the four month trial. So <laughs> not short term, it's four months, 4% versus 70%, no difference at all. Why? Because it's a calorie deficit. It has nothing to do nothing with the carbohydrates. Yeah. yeah, and then furthermore, Kev, um, Kevin Hall, so it was Hall et al. in 2015, and he actually did the gold standard in nutrition, which is known as metabolic ward data. Now, metabolic ward data is essentially like having human rats. So you put humans in a lab and you can determine exactly how many calories they eat per day, exactly how many calories they burn per day, and you can control for essentially everything. No so variables. No variables. Your metabolic ward is your gold standard for nutritional data. And Kevin Hall had to both groups in a caloric deficit, one higher carb, one lower carb. And by the end of the study, it was actually the high carb group that lost more weight. And this was in 2015. And the nutrition world blew up. Mm. If, you, if you ran in the same nerdy nutrition circles that I did in 2015, social media completely blew up at this point. So what happened, they were like, holy crap, what the heck happened? We want to repeat this, this research and see if it happens again. So Kevin Hall and his colleagues, again, same, same study crew in 2016. So one year later, they were approved for another trial where they didn't just do high carb and low carb. They did high carb versus full on ketogenic diet. Right. So they did high carb versus ketogenic. <clears throat> they put both groups in a 300 calorie per day deficit. And by the end of the study, no difference rates of weight loss and or fat loss both exactly the same thing wow. why 
because it was a calorie deficit. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with carbs. So that's something. Nothing to do with ketones. Nothing to do with ketones. No, it has to do with energy. It has to do with physics. It has to do with law of thermodynamics. Yep. Energy can't be created nor destroyed. It can only be transferred Transfer. from one entity to another. Yep. A calorie is a unit of energy. It's not a unit of mass. And a calorie can be found in either fat or carbohydrates. These are things that um, it, it, it is. It is physics. It is laws of thermodynamics. And the calories in versus calories out model hasn't been disproven in over five decades of controlled research now. Five decades, you know. I've debunked this so many times that all these studies and even years of this study are just locked in my brain <laughs> because I've done it so many times. I've had to explain it so many times over. You look like you've got photographic memory and you're just reading off a page <laughs> written on the back wall here. Yeah. No, no, I could, I could do this for a long time. A lot of different studies locked in my head to try and, and one of my missions in this industry is to, under, to get people to understand that nutrition is not a belief system. Mm. It is a science Mm. so when someone says something like i believe this i'm sorry but i don't care what you believe believe, i don't care okay human metabolism is a science okay i believe that mcdonald's is the best post-workout meal (laughs) it's an extreme example but that's what people are saying like they and not what they're saying but like when they say they believe something i can technically say i believe anything Mm. It doesn't mean it has any scientific merit to it. It doesn't mean it that follows any of the laws of physiology. It doesn't mean that it follows any of the laws of sports physiology to what we need to maximize performance and recovery. It doesn't mean that it follows any of those fundamentals. Mm. It just means that that's someone's opinion. But opinion is like a like a what? Everybody has one. Like a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could swear in your podcast. Sure you can, man. Go for it. Opinion is like an asshole. Exactly. Everyone has one. It doesn't yep. make you special, okay? Yep. It needs to be a correct something. It needs to be something that is founded upon the current body of data. And I guess, I guess to a degree, the two statements, I believe in Jesus Christ and I believe in intermittent fasting they're, they're, they're very different things. Yeah. One, one is based on science. One, yeah. one is based on faith. faith. That's yeah, right. ex- exactly. You can't have faith in a scientific principle. No. It is fact. It, 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 there is some, it is fact. Mm. You know, it is absolute fact. It's like saying this table is not here. Yep. Well, I just smashed it and that picked up on the microphone. Mm-hmm. That table absolutely is here. It is fact. It is there. There's something. There are things that we know in physiology to be true. Mm. And there, there are things in nutrition that we know to be true so that's one of the the fallacies you know you asked me about mispractices and fallacies one of the biggest one is carbs make you fat it's not true and in fact fighters should be having carbs Mm. the only time I start to take carbs out of a fighter's diet is if they're going through a hard weight cut and that's only gonna be seven days out so even if you have a ton of weight to lose, I'm still only ever going to pull carbs seven days out. Mm. It's a, because it's, it's, it's irrelevant until mm. that point, okay? But when we're talking about uh, glycogen in the cell, mm-hmm. the carbohydrate energy within a cell will hang on to, is it three times as much? 3.2. 3.2 yes. times as much water. Yeah. So there's a lot of mass associated with those carbohydrates. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll pull carbs out seven days out from weigh-ins, not because I get a magical fat loss effect, Mm. but because I get a quick weight loss effect. Mm -hmm. I get a quick weight loss effect. You're gonna lose a lot of um, weight in general in the form of glycogen and in the form of water 
um, which is going to help the athlete drop a few kilos without needing to actually lower their calories. I think that's another reason why a lot of people think that low carb diets work for them. It's because they go, well, I went low carb and I lost three kilos in the first week. You lost three kilos of water. Mm -hmm. You didn't lose three kilos of fat in the mm -hmm. first week because that would require like a 50 or 60, 70% deficit, which you absolutely didn't do or else you'd be in a concentration camp. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's something that's just 100% not true. They lost the hydrate in the carbohydrate. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's a yeah. good way to put it. I'm going to steal that and just, and just never give you credit for it. But that's, I'll <laughs> take the royalty checks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's... Uh, that's that's uh, something that needs to be covered. Um, fighters should be having carbohydrates. Combat sports, judo, jiu-jitsu, wrestling, muay thai, kickboxing, boxing. These are all anaerobic efforts. Mm. Carbohydrates are glycolytic, meaning they fuel anaerobic bouts of performance um, for both conditioning but also power output. So your conditioning and your KO power. These are very anaerobic events that are happening and it's a supply and demand field chain. Mm. Since we need to fuel anaerobic processes, it's supply and demand. We need to supply carbohydrates for the demand of anaerobic fuel, mm -hmm. period. Easy. Right? Easy. It, sh it should be easy. And we talked about on the Fight Strength podcast um, earlier that carbohydrates also fuel the nervous system and the muscular system simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So you're getting a very well-rounded nutrient that delays both local fatigue and systemic fatigue. And that's important to care about because you can reach systemic fatigue before you reach local fatigue. So for example, if I'm doing a set of bicep curls for 15 reps, but then I fail at 12 reps, well, my biceps might not have actually failed, but my nervous system actually failed at that point. So I wasn't actually able to drive a maximal stimulus for growth and strength and change in my biceps because I couldn't actually get the muscle to reach failure because the nervous system reached failure before my biceps ever did. Right. And we need to fuel them both. We need to fuel the biceps and we need to fuel the nervous system if we're actually gonna be able to prevent both local fatigue in the biceps and systemic fatigue within the nervous system. You know, carbohydrates cover both of these. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of carbs through a whole fight camp. I'm a big fan of carbs pre, intra, and post-workout nutrition. Those are some major fallacies that I think would need to be covered first um, in terms of fighters. Another thing I think that, uh, that a lot of fighters do is too hard of training within the last week before a weight cut. Right. Now, right. this is great. We touched on this in the Fight Strength podcast, mm -hmm. so please continue. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of fighters, um, it's counterintuitive thinking. They want to train really hard the last week before, um, maybe to get some nerves out, maybe to get some confidence up, and maybe to train really hard to try and lose some weight. Mm. But Or maybe it's the way they've always done it. Some of these yeah. collegiate wrestlers, they're psychopaths like that. Yeah, you know? for sure. Yeah, yeah. The, the old school ways of fighting and the old school methods. Um, with a lot of the science that's available now, some of these old school methods were proven good. You know, we can keep them around, mm. but a lot of them were proven- uh, like, Unhealthy, yeah. yeah. no pain, no gain kind yeah, of a yeah. thing. And then it ended up in lots of pain, no gain. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's a- uh, Lots it, of pain, no pay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you end up overtraining and getting uh, sick right before a fight. And mm. how often do you hear fighters pulling out because they're sick? Mm. Happens all the time. It's because they're, 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 they're training intensive 
intensity is excellent, but their recovery capacity is, can't handle their training intensity. And what do they say? You're only as good as the amount of work you can recover from? Yeah, exactly. That's what I always say to my athletes. You aren't what you can do. You only are what you can recover from. Yeah. That's what you are. Yeah. It's two sides of the equation. You need to build the recovery right into the program. But I uh, got off a little on, on tangent there. If you, uh, if you go high intensity training, training within, the, within the week before your fight, one thing we know from physiology is that inflammation causes water retention. Mm -hmm. So if you are training too hard to the point where you're causing muscular soreness or any, or any type of muscular damage, well, this does cause inflammation to increase within that muscle tissue. Well, it is but, inflammation. It's exercise-induced inflammation. Exactly. Right? That's yeah. like the reason why we train. Mm -hmm. but we want to back that off in the week before because inflammation causes uh, water retention. So mm -hmm. if we're training very hard, we're actually increasing our water retention in the body, which is going to make our weight cut even harder than it otherwise would have been. Yes. So people are training hard to try and make their weight cut easier, mm -hmm. but that's actually what's going to make their weight cut harder. Mm -hmm. So actually low intensity aerobic efforts is what people should be doing if they're getting close to um, getting close to their weight cut. Mm -hmm. And would you would you consider pairing that with some high velocity low volume movements as well? Yeah, that's something you could because it's likely not going to cause a lot of muscle damage. Yeah, less mechanical damage, exactly. more nervous system stimulation. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. you're still going to have a few days off before the event anyways, especially if you're going through a pretty big weight cut. Yeah. So then by that point, all your nervous system will be recovered, muscular system will be recovered, inflammation will be very low, and that is a fighter that's primed and ready to rock. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so those are just a couple of myths that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, in addition to the fact that uh, we want to coach people and not coach numbers, yes. I want to reinstate that one too. Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are some of the markers or you know some of the things that you're looking out for in your athletes during fight week or in lead up to the fight that um, you know that, that may not be common knowledge that that you've picked up on in the past. It may be a dead giveaway that. This fight is doing too much. This fight is heading towards that systemic inflammation zone. Um, if they're getting way too many cramps, that's cramps. Yeah, yep. I know their electrolyte balance is off, and electrolyte balance needs to be at an optimal level because mm -hmm. a lot of people think hydration is water, but hydration is water plus electrolytes. Electrolyte balance. You know, yeah. water is ultimately what hydrates us, but it only ever gets to the cell if you have the electrolytes to deliver it there. Yes. So we need the electrolytes for the full hydration. And um, hydration is something a lot of people just simply don't respect. And I'll unpack a bit of that data right now. When you look at the totality of evidence on hydration, just a half a percent loss in body water results in increased cardiac stress. So your heart starts working a lot harder mm -hmm. than it otherwise should have to in, to do the physical activity that you're currently to doing. To do the same amount. Exactly, of, to yeah. do the same amount. So, an, But an elevated heart rate is associated with exercise-induced fatigue. Mm -hmm. So if your heart's working too hard, then the heart is more important than your fight. Your biology <laughs> doesn't care about your fight. So when the heart starts elevating, then, then the biology's saying, okay, Heart's working too hard, we're gonna start shutting things down and we're yes. gonna cause fatigue right now. So we're gonna cause fatigue so you stop moving. Yeah. So that's just at a half a percent loss in body water, you're gonna increase stress on your heart. Yes. 
had a 1% loss in body water, we already start seeing decreases in your cardiovascular capacity. Right. So your cardiovascular... Conditioning you, goes down. Literally, your, car, your conditioning starts going down, yep. period. Now that's from an aerobic standpoint. Mm -hmm. But at a 3% loss in body water, we start seeing your muscular endurance go down. Right. So muscular endurance, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, um, jockeying for position, your jab, continuing to throw that muscular endurance, jab, continuing. That's only at a 3% loss in body water. Yeah, right. We start seeing a decrease in muscular endurance, not just cardiovascular capacity. And at a 4% decrease in body water, this is when we see a decrease in muscular strength and a decrease in motor skills. Right. So look at, like, we're only at a 4% loss in body water at this point. We've reduced our motor skills, which means our coordination's off. Balance, and, and everybody knows that timing is everything <laughs> when it comes to fighting. Yeah, yeah. We've reduced our muscular strength. So this is literally your KO power, power yeah. or your ability to get a double leg takedown and win that strength battle. And then at the, the previous, the 3% drop was our muscular endurance. So us winning, winning battles up on the cage or being able to have that anaerobic conditioning, being able to keep that jab going. And then the 1% yeah. the loss in body water was the reduction in cardiovascular capacity. And the half a percent loss was the increased stress on the heart. Mm. So water's not something to play around with. Electrolytes aren't something to play around with. So yeah. when someone's not having enough water or they're starting to get cramps, get it checked fix that now yes. because I don't care if you're genetically talented this is another science thing yeah. I don't care how talented you are my friend mm. if you are 4% dehydrated you're weaker and you're less of an athlete mm -hmm. no matter where you came from I don't care even if you had the perfect fight camp you could have a 12 week fight camp with no injuries everything went phenomenal and then you showed up one day dehydrated and you screwed up your performance so it's something where we gotta have everything in check we gotta have our ducks in a row sure. so that's one of the biggest things i'm looking at in going into a fight week now there's going to be a natural dehydration stage during that weight cut but the way in which you manipulate the rehydration shake afterwards and the meal afterwards are really going to help get all those hydration and more importantly get those electrolytes back in the body so that we <clears throat> enter enter our competition whether it's a same day weigh-in or a 24-hour weigh-in, we're going to enter the competition in a better state to be able to perform. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Now, in those stages of dehydration, mm -hmm. um, you know, we got down to 4% there. Yep. At which point does the brain start seeing some serious damage? Uh, at, the, at which point does the brain start seeing damage? Well, you can slip into a coma or die at a 10% loss in 10%, body water. Right. So that's when you start seeing a massive <clears throat> coma and or death. But I would say that the brain probably starts receiving damage earlier than that. Right. And I would say that's probably around in between, geez, I mean, this, now this is a guess as a disclaimer to everybody, but I would say it'd be anywhere in between five and 8%, mm -hmm. because if we're getting a reduction in motor control by 4%, yeah, then yeah. motor control is something where it's controlled already- Controlled by the brain. It's already neural. Yeah. So it's yeah. something where that's, that's happening. So in terms of dehydration to cause damage, that's something where uh, I, don't, I don't think it's crazy to say that we would begin the damaging aspect somewhere between five and eight percent mm. i was really looking for something um on that range between you know like the the smallest impact on performance to something really critical and life-threatening yeah 
Um, and, and with that said, I guess what I really want to know is, do you have a system or a protocol or ratios of hydration levels and, and electrolyte balances that you use with, with your guys and girls? Um, I'm essentially just looking for subjective biofeedback. Right. So what they're telling me about their performance, because I know what they were like 12 weeks out. That's when I want all my fighters to let me know 12 weeks before they hire me. For some reason, every fighter thinks they should go through an eight-week fight camp. I don't know why that started. Eight weeks it's, out. It's Joel Jamison's <laughs> eight weeks out. I right? think it totally is. Yeah, like for some reason, everybody just does an eight-week fight camp now. But um, I prefer 12. Yeah. Um, yeah. And well, I don't. I don't care what somebody does. I don't care if you start your training eight weeks out. But I want you to start your nutrition 12 weeks out. Yes. Because one of my goals as a coach is I want you to focus on the fight and not focus on your diet. There are so many fighters who are like, yeah, I made weight, as if that was the challenge, you know? <laughs> no, you have to fight, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm, you, still mm-hmm. to, you still have to go win a fight. So when, when someone is, or like, oh man, I'm not losing weight this week, what do you think? Uh, I'm not losing weight, uh, it's just, should I cut this out, should I do that? Forget about all that. Mm-hmm. You should be focused on your opponent. You should be focused on your training. You should be focused on your strategy. You should be focused on your technique. Mm. If I do my job correctly, you don't even ask questions about the diet because mm. it works. You know, I don't actually even want you to focus on me or the diet. It should just be working in the background. Yes. And you're able to get a good, clean system going if you start early enough. And then you don't have to stress out about any of this. Mm. So throughout the process, to get back to your question, 12 weeks out, I know how they perform. I know what they're like when they got a full belly. I know what they're like when, they're, when they are not beaten down. So I'm looking for things like um, uh, muscle cramping. I'm looking for things like if they're waking up in the night with cramping. I'm also looking for even performance inside the gym because by the time they got down to two weeks out, one week out, they should be at their highest level of conditioning Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not a low level of conditioning. And like we talked about, that can be associated with hydration. So I'm looking at a lot of measures like that and I'm just ensuring throughout the entire way that they're following my water recommendation guidelines, they're following my meal plan guidelines, and if they're doing those, then they're getting the proper amount of sodium potassium magnesium that they should be getting in on a day-to-day basis they're getting the proper amount of water on a day-to-day basis so for the listeners listening to this podcast 1.1 ounces per kilo of body weight per day would be the amount of water intake that you would want to take in so if i'm 200 pounds it's 100 ounces of water per day and that would be the recommendation that would be not including your training so that's how much water you should be taking in on a day-to-day basis and then you would have more during your training sessions obviously your drink bottle or whatever it is you're taking during the workout yeah yeah so so, i mean an, an easy thing that i like to do for people is if you have a water bottle that's um let's say 16 ounces and you're supposed to have 100 ounces per day well that'd be like 16 32 oh man 48 54 70 86 so it's gonna be about seven water bottles per day wow so that would be that for a 200 pound individual So then what I would do for someone is I'd say, okay, just get your one water bottle that's 16 ounces, which is a pretty big water bottle, and then put seven elastics on it. 
And then when you drink that water bottle once, take, take one, one elastic off. off. Yeah. And then when you drink it again, take another elastic off. Yeah. So it's an easy way to control your water intake without having to think about it all the time. Yeah. Just take elastics off throughout the day, and then you know that you're on your water, you're on point for your water intake. You know what? That could be an excellent strategy, and it could double up with strategies for, for people who have um, behaviors they're hoping to control. Say. Mm. Every time I think a certain thought, I snap an elastic band <laughs> yeah. on, on my wrist. Yeah. Now, if you're getting down to your seventh bottle of water for the day, you've got six bands, and you think that thought, you have to snap yourself six <laughs> times with a band. That's awesome. You like that? Yeah, they feed into each other. I like that Correct a lot. Correct behaviors and get hydrated <laughs> at the same time. That's good. I like that. Yeah. But um, we, hydration obviously being only half of the equation here, we need to talk about electrolyte balance as well. Mm -hmm. Now, again, we touched on this earlier in the Fight Strength podcast. Yep. Um, and for listeners, please please go ahead, uh, check out the Fight Strength podcast, episode 50 with Dan Garner. Um, we covered a lot, of, a lot of ground in that, but strategically we tried to separate what we covered in both podcasts. So, mm -hmm. so please do get over there and check out that episode. Um, yeah, there's, there's no duplicate content there Yeah, at that's all. right. We, we tried our best to not duplicate. Um, but we did touch on the electrolyte balance, and the thing I found interesting was that magnesium kind of plays the role of, of the gatekeeper between sodium Correct. and potassium. Yeah. So if, if you would, please, just, just a brief summary so we don't double up. Sure, sure. So essentially, sodium's causing muscular contraction, and potassium's causing muscular relaxation. Mm -hmm. And you need both in order to optimize performance, because we need to be able to contract at maximum velocities, but when you're moving at maximum velocities, you also need to be able to relax, or else you're going to run into a lot of cramping issues which would otherwise decrease your performance mm -hmm. now what's important to understand is that magnesium is the doorman he's the guy in front of the door at the club and he allows sodium and potassium inside the cell or outside the cell and scientifically speaking he controls intracellular and extracellular concentrations of sodium and potassium mm -hmm. so even if you have excellent levels of sodium and potassium in your muscle cell you are going to have to have optimal levels of magnesium at the same time in order to regulate the two. Beyond this, we do need the water on top of all that to bring everything home and make sure that the concentrations aren't just electrolytes, but they also have the water on top of that to be able to make hydration fully, fully complete. So that's kind of the quick breakdown there, but something I didn't mention on the Fight Strength podcast okay. that uh, people could gain some value on this Unknown Strength podcast is the fact that people should be aiming for about 10 milligrams per kilo of body weight per day mm -hmm. in magnesium intake. Okay, okay. Up until that reaches one gram. Not a fan at all of anybody going, going over, over one gram. gram of magnesium per day every okay. day, but the goal should be about 10 milligrams of magnesium per kilo of body weight per day every day. So if you're 70 kilos, 700 milligrams of magnesium. Yep. What does that break, to, break down to in, in amount of capsules or? Or tablets? Um, well, I want people to include food and capsules. So okay, I'm okay. a big fan of just whole food intake too. So, you know, raw nuts contain a lot of magnesium. Avocados contain a ton of magnesium. Yep. So those are some great sources for people. But most capsules contain about 150 milligrams of magnesium. Right. So 700, that would be like... 
Uh, be four. Four would take you to six hundred, yep. and then it would be then it'd easy be... to get a hundred through food. You yep. know, super easy. So you'd probably be able to have less than that in terms of capsulated magnesium. So th those are the rules that I like to to stick to. That's what the human body needs in order to drive optimal performance. And magnesium has over three hundred biological reactions within the body. So it does way more than just d dominate muscular performance. It's also important for sleep quality. It's all over the place. It helps reduce anxiety, it helps improve blood sugar control, it helps bring down inflammation, it helps improve the ratios of HDL to LDL. There's a lot of things that magnesium does, not to mention magnesium is actually a rate limiting step in producing testosterone. Meaning, if you do not have enough magnesium, you literally can't form testosterone. Wow. So it's a rate limiting step. Yeah. As I can see a lot of guys running down to the, yeah. uh, the chemist right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So magnesium is something we could probably, you and I could probably do a podcast on magnesium. Magnesium just, alone. Just by itself. With over 300 reactions in the body, dude. Yeah. That, that might be a two-parter. Yeah, or a 300 parter. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's something where... Uh, it, the, those, the electrolytes and overall minerals in general play a big role for fighters. And, you know, to take it a step further, don't miss, um, don't miss, um, I, it's hard for me to find the word right now, but you want to have the absolute amount of respect for the micronutrients as you do the macronutrients. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I was trying to say. Um, because one thing we know from research is that both magnesium and vitamin B2, they decrease the duration and frequency of migraines and headaches. Okay. Now, if you're a fighter, migraines and headaches can really bring down performance, Absolutely. but it turns out getting punched in the face sometimes gives you a headache. So I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah. <laughs> so vitamin B2 and magnesium status, they can reduce the duration and frequency of headaches and migraines, okay. but not the intensity. So they, when they come, they're still bad, but they come less often and for not as long. Okay. So I still consider that very much a win. It's still a win, yeah. Right. So we're going to have, and that just kind of brings us to the, the topic of food quality. It's not enough just to have your calories and your macronutrients. Macronutrients, for those of you unfamiliar, when I say macronutrients, just your distribution of protein, Cops. carbohydrates, and fat. Those are your macro, your bigger nutrients. Your micronutrients are your vitamins, your minerals, your antioxidants, your phytonutrients, and those kinds of things. Mm. So it's not enough just to have your calories and macronutrients in check. You need a high level of food quality as well, or else you'll miss out on things like magnesium and B2, which can help out these headaches, and I think that's very relevant for combat sports athletes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on. Um, we've, we've been through myths, fallacies, worst practices, and I think we, we've covered a lot of stuff there. Yeah, I don't want to pick on people too much. Yes, so I'm, <laughs> I'm being very careful not to, not to force you to name names. Um, keto and intermittent, intermittent fasting for amateur fighters. Mm -hmm. let's, um, let's first of all talk about its application because you, again, you and I were talking off air. I've always had a problem with intermittent fasting in principle because essentially what you're doing with your training is you are creating a demand, mm. both locally and systemically, yep. um, for nutrients. And when you're talking about intermittent fasting in principle, you're talking about robbing your body of those nutrients it's screaming out for. Mm. So just straight off the bat, 
just looking at that logically, that to me seems like a no-no. Mm-hmm. Um, take it from there, mate. Like, where do you sit on it? Well, as, as far as ketogenic diets and intermittent fasting, I would put this in the the mispractices category all right, too, all right, all right. The, the kind of fallacy category. Um, because, I mean, like we already talked about previously, carbohydrates drive anaerobic performance, mm. period. There is a mountain, literally a mountain of data. Irrefutable. Yeah, an absolute mountain of data. And um, the, the data on carbohydrates fueling athletic performance compared to fat-adapted athletes in performance is it's laughable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wildly, wildly skewed towards carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And any glance at the data would be able to tell you that. So it's something where a lot of athletes will come across a charismatic character or read a blog or listen to a podcast. Or a sales page. Or a sales page. Yeah, absolutely. And that on and those and a tool is only ever as good as it is applied. So what these sales pages and what these blogs and people will essentially do is they will say um, ketogenic diets and and intermittent fasting diets they're great for blood sugar management, they are great for inflammation management. And there is some data to suggest that beta-hydroxybutrate is a ketone that is released when in ketosis that has been demonstrated and connected towards um, preventing neurodegeneration. Mm -hmm. So it can help with the brain in some sense. So, Dan Garner, what's that got to do with performance? Absolutely nothing. Thank you very much. I'm so glad that you asked that question. Mm -hmm. Absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. So all those things sound awesome, and they can be, provided you've got the right tool for the right job. Mm -hmm. Don't come to me and say, well, I'm on the ketogenic diet for fight performance. No, you're not. You're on the ketogenic diet for health benefits. And that's what you're on. Inflammation and it, things like that. It's yeah. going to actually do nothing for your performance and your recovery. It's not going to be able to help you in that sense. Would you say it would work against recovery for an athlete? Yeah, supply and demand. Yeah. Supply and demand. Yeah, this you, is the thing. Yeah, you, you, you're going to utilize your carbohydrates as your preferred muscular fuel source and the preferred nervous system fuel source. Mm-hmm. So you, for you to not replace that supply and demand chain means your body has to use a fuel that is second in line to do that job. Mm-hmm. Not first in line, second in line to do that job. So your body's going to have to start using fat to do that. That's what fat adapted is. Is. Mm. But the oxidation of fat for anaerobic energy is incredibly less efficient than carbohydrates are for anaerobic energy, especially when it comes to both muscular and nervous system um, outputs. So the, it's, it's not even close. What are some of the risks involved? The risks involved? Mm. Um, I'm not sure if there would be many risks involved other than getting in the cage in a suboptimal performance. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I was heading with it. Yeah. But if you're using a suboptimal energy source, yep. um, surely, there's, you know, surely there's some fallout there. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of ways to view it. So when you, th- when you say risk to me, um, I think that one of the big risks is because you are you're not performing optimally and that's going to be a risk when you are into um, combat sports and and, uh, the risk really can really come from your weight cutting as well because weight cutting as far as what 
common practice is, is you're going to be able to drop carbohydrates out of the diet about seven days prior to mm -hmm. in order to get that hydration and carbohydrate loss out of the muscle. You want to build a muscle up and feed a muscle so that the weight cut is a lot more simple. So the water just flies off. Exactly. Yeah. But if you've been on a low carb diet all along, then now you don't have that trick. Mm. So now you can picture it like if you have a lot of muscle tissue that's full of glycogen, you're like a sponge that is completely filled up with water mm. and then I'm able to start wringing out that sponge and a lot of water comes out so the weight cuts actually very easy mm. but if I've been on a low carb diet the whole time well it's like wringing out a sponge that's already dry mm. well I guess in line with that analogy like you have to squeeze so much harder on that exactly on that sponge which actually damages the sponge yes it damages the sponge damages your performance mm. and then it's a uh, and then lots of times those guys refuel with carbohydrates after anyway before mm. the fight mm. it's like why didn't you just do that all along yeah. <laughs> that would have helped you so much more yeah. not to mention glucose actually grabs water and electrolytes out of the small intestine and delivers it to the muscle cell faster than it otherwise would have got there right. you know for example um, if you have severe diarrhea and vomiting mm. and you get sent to the hospital they'll have you drink something called Pedialyte. Yes. And Pedialyte's a combination of water, electrolytes, and da, 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 Glucose. Yeah, <laughs> sugars. Mm. And why do they do that? Because sugars deliver carbohydrates, uh, sorry, sugars deliver electrolytes and water to the muscle cell faster than it otherwise would have got there. Mm -hmm. So in a drink that is given to people who could potentially die of dehydration because of severe diarrhea and vomiting that mm. they can't stop, they give them Pedialyte that includes sugar because it's going to ensure they stay hydrated in order to stay alive. And this is something that's actually been used in the fight game, but it's another reason why you should be having carbohydrates your whole fight camp to fuel, not only fuel anaerobic performance, but to also fuel all the hydration things we've been talking yes. about in this podcast. Yes. Yeah. So it should be done in fight camp. It should be done post weigh-in. There's a, I would consider that a risk all by itself mm. because you don't want to squeeze the sponge too hard and um, you don't want to run into a risk of hydration, um, especially before a fight. You don't want to run into you risk don't want to dehydration de yeah dehydration sorry and you don't want to um um suboptimally perform during the fight camp either so sure. it's something that is just uh when I look at a cost-benefit analysis and I see costs and not a lot of benefits, then I don't want to do it. Mm. That's just the entire nutrition game is cost versus benefits. Mm. And when, since we understand that weight management is determined by energy balance and that carbs don't make us fat and carbs also do all these beneficial things for us, we've got no cost and we have plenty of benefits. So it's something where it doesn't make any logical sense to me to opt for one strategy over another. So you go with what works. You go with what works and you go with what's demonstrable within the research. And then we also don't go with something that's just made up. You know, someone says that uh, keto's better for, for fighters or keto's this or keto's that. Uh, show me the data because somewhere I'm missing in this gigantic nutrition pile of data that you are making these statements out of nowhere. Yeah. So that's something. I've always felt like I've been missing the point with, with all that stuff. It's like it makes no sense to me from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it doesn't make very much common sense. 
and um, I, I just I, I don't see the the referenceable data behind it either. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, it's something where I wouldn't consider it that way. Um, from a health perspective, sure, absolutely, do your thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with it. That's something I don't want the viewers for to get from me either. I'm not against intermittent fasting. I'm not against ketogenic diets. I've actually used both of those approaches with my clients in the past, but right tool for the right job. Mm, it's mm. not for fighters. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it would come down to, again, reverse engineering the outcome yeah. to determine the modality. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. I've seen people with some questionable ideas and some questionable practices. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, no doubt these people feel great doing what they're doing, mm. but it makes no sense when you break down the science behind it. Yeah, you, and the, you know what I mean. Yeah, and there's difference. There's a difference between RPE and performance too. Mm, mm. RPE is rating of perceived exertion. Yeah. So sometimes these jujitsu guys, these fighters, would be like, "Well, no, I'm still going really hard in practice." I bet you are. I bet you are going hard. I bet your rating of perceived exertion is high. Mm. It doesn't mean your performance is high. Yeah. It doesn't mean you couldn't be performing better. Yeah. It just means you're trying hard. Yeah, there's nothing objective. There's nothing objective about that yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. You know? it, it's, and the thing is, you actually don't run into this in other sports, believe it or not. Um, there are no hockey players on ketogenic diets or low-carb diets. Mm -hmm. There are none of my football guys are on low-carb diets. Um, none of, uh, like, really no, none of my other athletes really even ask me questions about this stuff. Mm. It's only the combat sports world. I do think that we still have to make up some ground on getting everybody re-educated on what performance nutrition really is. Mm. Yeah, indeed, mm -hmm. especially for this context because it's quite unique. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's good. All right, that's, um, that's covered pretty much everything I wanted to cover on that particular topic. There's one more question I've got for you. Sure. Um, one we discussed off air again, but I think it's really relevant to the particular audience for the Unknown Strength podcast because we have a lot of uh, amateur fighters out there who, mm. you know, uh, perhaps can't aff you know, d don't have the resources for, for high-level coaching. Um, uh, they don't have people in their town who are experts in the field. So they're really you know, on the lookout for the best information possible mm. um, to do with you know, their, their upcoming tournament. How can they perform optim optimally? All that sort of stuff. Yeah. So my question to you is, um, for a young amateur fighter, BJJ competitor, mm -hmm. for example, um, they walk around at a certain weight and uh, they've got a, a tournament coming up in a couple of weeks and they're walking around one or two kilograms heavier than their weight division. Yep. Um, things like salt baths, um, yep. water loading a week out, uh, some of the things I've seen work to varying degrees of success. Yep. Um, what are some things you could suggest for members of the audience in that kind of situation? Sure. So if somebody's got to lose just like one kilo, Sometimes that's just a good trip to the bathroom. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it can be pretty simple. Um, water loading, saunas, salt baths. Mm -hmm. These are all things that I have used in the past, but only for athletes who have a 24-hour weigh-in. Yeah. So yeah. not the not the. We'd be talking same, same day. Yeah, yeah not yeah. the same day weigh-in. Yeah. But same day weigh-in, you should always be. I like my fighters walking around within three to four pounds of their weight class. Mm -hmm. So that is just like. Um, just under just under two kilos yep. so I like them just under two kilos within their weight class and it can actually be kept quite simple 
Um, you're only going to need to drop carbohydrates out of your plan and not even drop total calories for about a day or so before. That's it. That's, a, that's it. And then maybe skip a meal and then make sure you get to the bathroom. And then that's really going to be all your way there. That's mm. all that's going to be required. The glycogen deplenishment, the glycogen depletion, sorry, glycogen depletion in combination with maybe missing one meal only if you have to. And, um, and then um, the, beyond that, you could also have one or two meals in the form of liquid rather than food to mm -hmm. decrease any GI residue. Mm -hmm. So we could have a liquid protein and carb meal rather than a sandwich, let's say, that you had previously. So if you do liquid meals, if you skip one meal, and if you decrease your carbohydrates for one or two days prior, that is easily going to get you on your way there. And then once you weigh in, the moment you step off the scale, if you have Vitargo plus whey protein isolate plus glutamine plus potassium and sodium and creatine, that combination is going to get you hydrated faster than anything else. Mm -hmm. It's really a build your own hydration drink. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That You do that combination right after, get your glycogen status back where it should be, and you'll be ready to rock. Love it. Yep. Dead simple, safe. Simple and safe. Yeah. yeah. There's if you manipulate nutrition, especially for a same day weigh-in, there's no reason at all you need to get in the sauna. Mm. None. Yeah, that's good. It's excellent. You know, I've, I've heard of people going so far as putting cotton balls in their mouth to get the saliva out of their I know. mouth. You know, yeah. Like I had I had a wrestler who came to me previously. He actually had a spit bucket. So every time spit g g gathered up in He'd his mouth, he out. would just spit it out. So he's just cotton mouth. God. Oh man, dude, just talk to me. I wish you came to me 10 years ago because yeah. we would have made this process so much easier on you. Yeah. No, I, I honestly think guys like yourself um, came about way too late in the game for the combat sports. Yeah, and that's why I keep repeating these fallacies and misinformation mm -hmm. things because one of my goals in life and in this in this game is to uh, bring it to the next level yeah yeah well that's the age we're in we really are mm. and uh and i'm i'm with you on the journey brother seriously we yeah. want to get we want to get the best quality information out to the fight community and uh, help everybody to do the best they can the safest way possible. Absolutely. Fighting's already dangerous. It doesn't need to be any more dangerous by doing things that aren't even beneficial to you. Mm, absolutely. Brother, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, man. I love <laughs> it. You get me fired up with these questions. Oh, you know what? It's just the way it's going to be, man. Trying to get me into debates. <laughs> what are we doing over here? I couldn't help myself. Yeah. I thought, surely there's got to be some dipshit that's going to argue against that. <laughs> well, that dipshit can stay online. <laughs> <laughs> Go troll someone else. Yeah. All right, my man, let's, let's call it a day. Yeah. Um, we'll wrap things up for now. Um, how can everybody get a hold of you on, uh, online? Sure. So I post training and nutrition information and updates on the research and all that stuff on my Instagram, at Dan Garner Nutrition, and on Facebook, Dan Garner Strength Coach and Nutrition Specialist. Excellent. Fantastic. Um, now, I'm going to try and have this episode up live before your Sydney show. Awesome. Um, so hopefully people kind of catch wind of it through this and you fill out those last few seats. Yeah, yeah. If you guys are in the Sydney area or nearby, I'll be, again, Sydney, February 22nd, 23rd, 24th, 
Rendezvous Hotel, Sydney Central. And just, it's as easy as messaging me on Instagram at Dan Garner Nutrition. Message me if you want in, if you want to take your knowledge and training and nutrition to the next level in a real evidence-based way, and I will make it happen for you. I love it, man. Always a pleasure, my brother. Cheers, brother. We'll say goodbye for now. Thanks, Dan Garner, and thank you to everybody for listening. Yeah, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, McGregor, for having me on the show. It was an absolute blast. Blast. Cheers, everybody. (laughs) Absolute pleasure. See you, everyone.